welcome to big book business. This is really exciting as a panel, I think, to be talking all things trade publishing. I'm super excited. Um, so I'm Claire Miller. I am one of the executive producers for this festival. Um, and I'm really excited to welcome you today to this panel. Um, so today, uh, we're going to have Radia Chowdhury, um, who is from Penguin Random House. Um, we have got Coco McGrath, who has recently left publishing, um, but had been an editor. And we will be um, hosted by Sonia Naya from Melbourne Writers' Festival, which is so exciting. Um, before we get started, I would like to acknowledge um, the country that I'm on today. I'm coming to you from Wurundjeri country. I would like to acknowledge elders past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I would also like to acknowledge um, the City of Melbourne for providing a grant for this festival, which means we've been able to pay everyone and to keep the tickets really accessible and affordable in terms of price. And we also have today um, Sharon from Ausline Connections um, providing closed captioning for us. I think we can pass on to Sonia to get started. Thank you so much for that introduction, Claire. And hi, everyone. Um, welcome to Big Book Business. Um, if you're in Melbourne, I appreciate you tuning in because I know the weather is nice for once. So extra appreciative that you could be here with us. Um, before we start, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land from which I join you all today, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations people that are joining us today. I would also like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that the land in which I'm on always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, so I'd like to introduce our two guests in more detail today by reading out their bios. Radia Chowdhury is a Muslim Bangladeshi Australian author and editor living on unceded Bijigal land in Sydney's southwest. Together with Kamha Pham and Grace Lucas Pennington, she's one of the founders and moderators of the Australian First Nations and People of Colour in Publishing Network and was a 2019-2020 Beatrice Davis Editorial Fellow. Awarded for her research paper, It's Hard to Be What You Can't See, Diversity Within Australian Publishing, which we will talk about more. She is currently a commissioning editor and senior audiobook producer at Penguin Random House Australia. Her most recent picture book, The Cathar Chest, was published by Alan and Unwin in April 2021. Please make her feel welcome, which you would probably do by clapping if we were in an IRL event. Um, next up, Coco McGrath, who is a former editor and bookseller who now works in environmental PR. She has previously worked at Affirm Press, written reviews for The Big Issue, Kill Your Darlings and The Lifted Brow, and presented at the Emerging Writers Festival, Right Around the Murray and the Digital Writers Festival. She is currently completing her Master of Environment and Sustainability at Monash University. Um, so how this panel will work is we'll have a 15-minute discussion and 10 minutes of Q&A at the end, but if you would like to insert your questions in the chat, um, we can answer it during the session if it's relevant to what we're talking about. Um, if not, I'll save them to the end. Um, so I have quite a lot of questions. We're going to get cracking and start. Um, I wanted to ask you, Radhya and Coco, what were both your pathways towards becoming editors in trade publishing? We can start with you, Coco. Sure. Um... I started, like I think a lot of people in publishing did, um, by doing an unpaid internship. Um, so that was at Griffith Review, uh, the literary journal based in Brisbane. Um, and while I was doing the internship, I was also working at an independent bookstore um, while also doing my 
creative writing honours. So I kind of had um, a finger in those three pies of uh, book selling, editing, and then um, writing myself. So I think um, the combination of that experience uh, led me to get my first job in um, Melbourne, which was marketing and communications officer at Collins Booksellers. Um, and I was there for about a year and a half, but the dream was always to be a book editor. Um, and so I left to travel and did a one month um, intensive publishing course, uh, which was run out of Oxford, but um, run by the Columbia University Journalism School. Uh, and so that was kind of a um, taste test of what it would be like to work in publishing. Um, we had to make our own fake publishing house, pitch books, um, do publicity campaigns. And uh, then when I got back to Melbourne, um, I got in touch with the firm press and just said I was available for freelancing. Um, and they happened to have a job going and um, that's kind of how it happened. But it wasn't really um, the course that I did because I know a lot of people do um, masters of editing and publishing and think that's um, a necessary step into the industry. But um, the other thing that everyone hears in publishing is it's not what you know, but who you know. And that's definitely how I got my start in publishing. Radia, did you want to tell us how you got into being an editor? Yeah, um, in a similar way to Coco, actually, I um, didn't do any publishing courses or anything like that. So yeah, I would definitely say that's def it's not a, a barrier of entry if you don't. Um, I used to be an academic at Sydney University and then um, got sick of working contract to contract and wanted a grown-up job and for some reason chose publishing. Um, mostly because it's, I did a, you know, my degree was in literature and so it seemed like a transferable skill to go into books, um, particularly because my research was always in children's books and so I thought I would look around for children's publishers. I looked around actually for a lot of, I applied for every single publishing job in the world that was, you know, magazine, digital, books, everything. Um, I didn't get anything for a long time. I spent about eight months unemployed and it was, you know, really privileged to be able to live with my parents while that was happening and living off savings. Um, and then eventually a friend of mine said um, I was overqualified for the roles I was applying for because they were all assistant jobs. Um, so I took my PhD off my CV, had a bit of a cry about it. And then um, first job I applied for straight after that, I got the job. And I think it was very much, um, it was less who I knew because I didn't know anyone in publishing. Um, and more just being in the right place at the right time because it was just before there was a big sort of influx of Masters of Publishing graduates in the market. Um, and I went to Scholastic Australia, um, who are not, uh, they're not an organisation that really um, mix freely with the rest of the publishing world. So knowing someone really wasn't going to help me there anyway, a little bit of an isolation unit. Um, and yeah, so they had a they had a publishing team of 10 at the time and they were rapidly growing they had just signed on a whole bunch of major international licenses like disney and marvel just as like disney and marvel were becoming a really big thing again and they really desperately needed someone and so i think i i think i got in maybe three or four months before all the graduates started trying to get jobs so it was just being really lucky um that no one was i wasn't really competing with anyone who who was like in inverted commas, more qualified than I to take that role. But yeah, that was how I got into it. It's so sad that you had to take off your PhD to get a job. It's shocking. Um, so I know both of you do slightly different things. I mean, you do a very different thing now, Coco, but back when you were an editor, um, you were 
and editor, and I guess you, Radia, you also do senior audio producing. Could you both tell us what, I guess, a typical day would look like for you, if there even is a typical day, or what a typical week might look like? I think it would be, um, yeah, quite different uh, for me at a small publishing house and then Radia at such a large publishing house. Um, so at a firm press, we were a team of about 12. We've recently grown quite a lot. Um, but at the time when I started uh, a typical week, you jump from uh, editing to briefing a cover. Um, I think that's one of the things that shocked me the most when I started is how little editing, um, the role of being a book editor involved. I kind of thought, um, you know, I'd be quietly immersed in a structural edit for an entire week but no you jump from a structural edit to proofreading a media release to um, briefing an illustrator for um, a cover concept or things like that which is um, great because you can kind of put different hats on um, but it also just means that you're you're just doing so many different things which is exciting as well <laughs> I shouldn't make it sound too onerous, but um, yeah, it's a lot more um, varied than I think maybe it might seem from, um, you know, younger or whatever else <laughs> we see as the, the image of um, what an editor does. Yeah, and for my part, um, the Penguin commissioning editors, I know this is different at different publishing houses, but the Penguin commissioning editors don't edit any other publishers work so you, you you're making your own list um, so my role as a commissioning editor is um, the, the role that penguin put me into was to um, seek out diverse voices um, whatever that means and um, for the most part they're unagented um, writers who you know I sort of just trawl online or at people who have been following for a long time and developing them towards a publication um, proposal because um, a multinational eye penguin is all about the bureaucracy and so you don't really get a great deal of discretion over the passion projects. You have to make the sales case for everything. So that's really the day to day. I've got, you know, the books that I've already I've already commissioned and, you know, they come in and they get structural edits from me, often several rounds of them because um, my writers are often debuts. Um, and they also need careful handling just Ethically, I think it's important that they take, get careful handling because they're working in an industry um, and a landscape that's uh, already quite a hostile one to writers of colour. So that's the commissioning side of things. It's um, certainly less busy than when I was an editor, where it was really like, as Coco, you've described it, it was just a, a lot of bitsy work all over the place that you just had to keep your, you had to keep all the plates spinning at all times because if you dropped something, like you didn't really know what the flow-on effect would be, but there would be a flow-on effect. Um, and the audio side is, um, uh, I mean, I have to be quite clear, the only reason I've got the senior in my title is because I've been there longer than the other producer and um, corporate-wise they wanted a differentiation between us. And so she does the bulk of the work um, and I sort of have the lovely privilege of being able to drop in every month and say, I want to do this title. Um, and it involves, you know, reading the manuscripts or the first pages as they come through from the rest of the publishing team. So um, Penguin's, attitude, uh, Penguin's approach to audio is if it can be in audio, it should be in audio. So the only things we don't do are like heavily graphic books or like cookbooks. Um, so going through them and then um, we're a really collaborative team. And so myself and the lead engineer and my um, co-producer, 
we'll have meetings about casting, we'll talk to agents, we'll get auditions, and it's it's very creative and very collaborative. Um, and we do like prep sessions with actors and that kind of thing. So that can be busy depending on what time of month it is, because we generally start doing that sort of prep work halfway through a month. Um, but then, yeah, like you'll just have nothing on the audio side except sort of maintaining the flow. Well, I don't anyway, because um, the other producer is doing all of the admin work that I don't have to do anymore. Yeah, both those, yeah, they sound really interesting. Like there's a big diverse variety of what you guys both do in a day-to-day. I'm interested, like, are there differences between working for a small indie publisher, Coco, and I guess a huge company like Penguin? Did both of you choose to work in those particular environments for a reason or was it kind of the jobs that you ended up getting? I think with publishing you take whatever job comes your way because it's so hard to get into the industry. Um, With a firm press, it, it was difficult in that you kind of did have to switch to any different role at any given time. But um, a real pro to working in a small um, independent is that you have more creative freedom that you might not get if you had to slowly climb the ranks somewhere larger. So I was able to acquire books um, in my first year or two, which I don't think could have been possible anywhere else um, as someone so uh, fresh to the industry. So that was incredible. But again, even if you've been there, like I'd been there five years, I'd still have to just quickly jump from um, commissioning or um, art direction to something uh, that probably, um, if there were more staff at a bigger place, wouldn't be part of my job. So I think maybe the difference uh, is that at a small company, you just have to do whatever work is thrown your way because they're so under-resourced. Um, and then also the creative freedom, which is quite a nice um, bonus to the work. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to, lucky sort of enough to work for a bunch of different um, com- kinds of companies. So I did actually, when I approached, uh, when I approached Penguin in the first place, because um, I initially was a producer there, I wasn't an editorial person at all. Um, and yeah, I was very curious about how, how multinational worked because I'd never experienced that before. I was at Allen Alban prior to that and it's an independent, um, it's a big independent, but it's independent. Um, and Scholastic is part of a multinational group, but they don't have multinational oversight. Like it's still run as a private fiefdom um, wherever the company is. Um, and then I've also like freelanced to places like Giramondo who are very small and indie. Um, and I will say, um, having experienced all of those, my personal preference is certainly for smaller publishers because you kind of get movement is so slow in bureaucratic multinationals because there are so many steps of oversight and approval and uh, a real, you don't just have the history of the people you work with and, you know, however long they've been doing their job a certain way, you have the history of the entire company and how they do their jobs. Um, and I used to joke when I first met to move to Penguin and it, it was quite a huge culture shock having gone from Alan and Alwyn where you can kind of, you fly under the radar, you do your job, people kind of leave you alone and you get known for doing your job well, but there's no growth potential. There's no pay rise on the mark, on the on the cards. Um, but yeah, I was joking to some friends when I moved to Penguin that, you know, at Alan and Alwyn you would have one person doing four people's jobs. And then at Penguin, you had four people doing one person's job. And so it becomes really granular. Everyone becomes, in multinationals, I think everyone becomes really protective of the work they do. So you get a lot less scope to do 
what I always loved doing because I worked for Scholastic and we were a small team, like hanging out at production, hanging out at design, working, working out how they did their jobs. Because I honestly think it makes you better as an editor in commercial publishing to know how every single piece of the puzzle works as opposed to being very siloed, which is how multinationals generally work. I'm interested if you both think there's an ideal temperament an editor should possess. So when I was reading both interviews that you had done, both of you mentioned that you were introverts. And I think, Coco, you talked about how this introversion has made you an excellent editor. What skills do you think both made you successful as an editor? Um, I was thinking about this the other day because I remember Martin, um, the publishing director at Firm Press, asked me before I started working there if I was an entrepreneurial editor or a meticulous editor. I didn't quite know what he meant at the time, but I kind of get it now, which is that the meticulous editor is someone who loves copy editing and proofreading and wants to get down to that really nitty gritty level, um, which I do not want to. I don't really care if it's a spaced N dash or a, I don't know, a um, unspaced M dash, don't care. Um, I also think we use way too many commas. Um, so I can't be a meticulous editor. I think I'm entrepreneurial which I took, well, I, I take to me now, if I've interpreted him correctly, um, similar to what Radi would be doing. So commissioning a list, building um, authors from that kind of um, raw debut stage, helping shape their work at a structural level, the kind of big picture. Um, and I think kind of introversion works for an editor because as a wild generalization, but being introverted, kind of sometimes also involves just emotional intelligence and empathy, which I think I think is a skill that all readers, you know, um, build because that's what reading is one of the great joys of reading is that you just go into other people's heads and experiences. Um, and I think that's what an editor needs to cultivate, just the ability to really empathise with the characters but also the author and what the author's trying to achieve. Um, so my theory is that introverts work quite well in that sense. I don't know, Radhi, if you agree with that. One of the reasons I think introverts, there's a, it's a sort of catch-22 where being really introverted does mean you're, you're more likely to get exploited by people who tell you that your visibility doesn't matter. But at the same time, publishing, being an editor in a publishing relationship means you you are invisible and you, like, you ideally should stay invisible. You should never be able to see the, the hands of an editor in a work. Um, that to me is bad editing. Um, I think I, I've never heard of entrepreneurial editing, but Coco, that just sounds, it's, it's exactly the kind of editing that I like. I've always thought of it as like creative editing as opposed to like meticulous editing. Um, and I'm exactly the same. I just, I think, I, I think it, there's a real skill if you have it. I don't know that it can be taught. I do think it is a me measure of like the empathy that you have. And I don't want to at all like shit on meticulous editing because there's definitely a place for that as well. Um, but the creative editing side of things for me is like being able to see big picture things, being able to not just see what is on the page, but what it could be and how you can coach the work in that direction without losing who the author is and what the author is trying to say. Um, and there's a huge challenge in that, but I also think there's a massive reward in it um, because there's nothing, uh, and this is probably coming back to my teaching days, but there's nothing more joyful than watching an author 
grow every single book that they write and every single piece of writing that you see of theirs is just getting better and better and better and it's like knowing that at, at least part of that is because you gave the right feedback at the right time not that you had to teach them how to do their jobs but just that you were adequately supportive and adequately critical in you know exactly the right measure at the right time to get that craft to the level that it needs to be because it is an ongoing journey of craft as an editor as well as as an author and having watched um ted lasso this is my new theory as well is that an editor is like a coach and has to um work out how each author learns best and yeah as you said Radhi, you have to kind of give the criticism and um also show compassion and it's kind of hard to be both a champion and you know a critic um and you need to assess how your author will respond best whether they like um uh compliment sandwiches or whether they want um the harsh truth and that kind of involves quite um careful coaching I think yeah you end up you very much end up a counselor a lot of the time as well you end up finding out more about your authors than maybe anyone else in their life knows um, because it's, it's all part of the same package, you know, when you're trying to deliver news and you know that they have a certain trigger point about a certain thing, you know you have to be really gentle about how you deliver that criticism. And this is kind of related to my next question, I guess, which is how you both work to build a constructive and fulfilling relationship with authors. I guess what are sort of the challenges of doing that and do you have any underlying principles that drive this work of yours? Um, I kind of, yes, yeah, similar to what I was saying just before the um the importance of assessing how your author will um, learn best, whether they need to be, um, yeah, I, I guess the, the relationship you build, you have to very quickly assess how they will respond to your feedback, um, how much detail they need, how much hand-holding. Um, quite a lot of authors I found needed to hear from me basically every day. So I'd have you know, people that I had to call every day just to check in and just have a catch up because people wanted different things from their editor. Um, some people, I, I guess this kind of depends whether you're a debut author or um, you're a career author, they kind of know the ropes, might need a little less hand-holding. Um, but, yeah, I think it's that um, the need to assess how to make them the best writer they can be um, and how to make their book the best version of the book it can be. Um, and, uh, yeah, helping them achieve their vision and kind of what Radhi was saying. Um, it's hard to do that and also stay invisible. Um, so you kind of have to just push them in the right direction. Um, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I think um, I know for, for my own practice, one of the first things I try to do is talk to the author about intention because, um, you know, often there will, there will often be a manuscript on the table when an author gets a publishing deal, but it is all about the idea and the potential of what they're trying to do. Um, and I, you know, in my freelance life, I've turned down jobs because the author can't answer the question about intention. And that to me is a red flag because it means that your book could go in literally any direction and you don't know and you don't seem, you don't as an author have any investment in which direction it goes. Um, so I, um, I always try to start from there and to start from that pace of trust because sometimes, yeah, sometimes it is really confronting to get an edit back, um, especially if you're a writer who is just sort of feeling their way forward and maybe hasn't had a great deal of practice. And, you know, I don't want to make any statements about, you know, um, 
writers of color or debut authors being like this because I've seen I've seen um, submissions from really established authors that are a hot mess and really surprisingly so so I don't think it's actually a bad experience I think it's just about like in the individual writer um, so I think it's that thing of knowing knowing what the vision is and then you as an editor being able to think okay what is the most perfect version of that vision and how can we get there um, and I think definitely there's there I think has been a long history of um, a lot of authors thinking about editorial relationships quite adversarially and I think that's really unhelpful for everybody involved because it's for me the equivalent of a, a expectant mother thinking of the midwife as an adversary um, because in an ideal world that's not what's happening that's this is a person who has a certain level of expertise otherwise you could home birth but you know you've gone to a certain um, professional for their expertise and their job is to create something beautiful with you and not to take that from you not to take the credit from you not to put their name on that baby and run away with it um, but to really help you bring the most healthy, beautiful version of that into the world. I love that analogy. Beautiful. <laughs> we have an audience question from Kelly. Um, is it possible to be meticulous and entrepreneurial or creative at the same time? Can the two sides exist in the one editor? Did either of you want to weigh in on that? I think they can. I am incredibly pedantic about the things that I like and not, don't like to see. Um, but I know, I know I will expend a great deal more energy on the creative than I will on the meticulous. Like if, if an author is going to come back to me and say, no, I absolutely categorically refuse to use an Oxford comma, it's not going to break me. I think it kind of comes down to resources and time. So I could be both if I had the time to proofread a manuscript um, over two or three weeks. But you don't get that in publishing. You need to do it in a week while you're also juggling other jobs. So. Um, Maybe it's just, yeah, how you um, flip between those two types of thinking. But um, I personally did find it hard switching from doing a structural edit to doing a copy edit to doing a proofreading, um, uh, proofreading a manuscript, because those three things require such different parts of your brain um, and you're going to different levels of the story. So it is hard to switch between them, or at least I found it was. But um, and so that's why I guess you kind of gravitate towards either the entrepreneurial, the meticulous, but I definitely think um, they can exist if publishing um, gave people more time and had more staff and all those things that the publishing industry doesn't have. I think also functionally you can't do, you can't be both on the one project in the same way that a person can't really edit their own work. You do need that other pair of eyes. So, you know, I'm very happy. I'm, I'm very happy to do a copy edit, less happy to do a proofread, but I also wouldn't do that on my own, like the books that I've structurally edited because I've, I already cannot see the forest for the trees and you and the more eyes come across a book, the better because then you've got, everything is so subjective, you've got several different subjective opinions crafting this book. So, I, you know, again, it comes down to resourcing in publishing houses often, yeah, you end up doing the same, you're the one person doing all of that work and, you know, I deal workflow in an ideal editorial team you would have you'd be sharing that load um so now we're entering into our salty part of the panel where we talk about the working conditions in publishing so yeah i thought it'd be really remiss to talk about the big book business without touching on the unequal conditions that characterize the publishing industry um both for the editors like you two but also the authors 
um, who do or do not have their the opportunity to have their work published for whatever reason. Um, so I think last year was sort of a very important year. We saw the funeral caused by the publication of books like American Debt, um, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, which catalyzed calls for more representative publishing, but also led to in-depth discussions around the advances that authors get and how unequal that can be. Um, did you both see the same level of reckoning in the Australian publishing industry and in your publishing houses in particular? I personally didn't really because um, from my point of view, the Australian industry is just so small um, that things do trickle down from the US or the UK, but uh, it might not um, it might not have much of a, an effect. Like I, I think um, there was a book selling organisation, I can't remember which one, so I won't say which, that I, I wouldn't guess, but they, you know, um, chose American Dirt as their book of the month. It was DMX. Oh, yeah. So it's like it's, it doesn't actually flow down really. So um, change feels a lot slower in Australian publishing. I'm not sure, Rady, if you had a different point of view. No, I mean, I completely share that. I think I saw after June last year, I saw a lot of um, a lot of noise um, and from that noise came a lot of very poor action that I think has actually done more damage than good because in the usual way of things, there is a level of, um, I think, arrogance in the, the people who are holding the, in the halls of power in publishing houses because you know they've been doing it for so long and they're very much in echo chambers amongst other arts literary people and they also for the most part do really pride themselves as being like lowercase liberal and woke and all of those things but actually it's still so homogeneously middle class it's so homogeneously white um that they there's no vocabulary there to actually engage with things in a meaningful way and also a complete unwillingness to see the power to people who should be speaking on these issues who do have the experience and the track records um and certainly and a sense of like well we did this bare minimum and people should just be grateful and everything else like overseas will manage it and then we'll deal with it it's not dissimilar to scott morrison's response to black lives matter which was that that's an overseas problem and we've inherited and we've um, imported it here which is a complete lack of understanding of what australian history is and what this the lived experience right now is as well as not just history um and so yeah i think publishing is definitely very guilty of that so like american dirt's a really good example by the time dimix had picked that as book of the month and it's like the biggest national chain i think um, by the time they had picked it as book of the month, all of the everything that had to be said about that book had already been said. And then I guess they just decided it didn't matter because we don't have a Latinx community here, in their opinion. Um, and that's, first of all, it's categorically untrue. There are Latinx people who live here, but also just because there's not, even if there wasn't a community here who was directly affected by it, there is an ethics that is a global Thing that we need to engage with as culture creators because um, publishing don't like to think of themselves as creators they like to think of themselves as reactionary but you know if you tell people the same stories over and over again they believe those stories um, and so we are really responsible for that we're really accountable for it but we're never held accountable and we refuse to hold ourselves accountable about it. Radhi what were the main takeaways from the research project you authored it's hard to be what you can't see diversity within Australian publishing and can you also tell us about how you founded the Australian First Nations and People of Colour in Publishing Network? In terms of takeaways, actually, it's kind of funny because I, I, I kind of refused to give any takeaways. I wanted people to like read it and like people by people, I mean, like the industry, I wanted them to read it and 
work things out for themselves because it's not my job to tell them what to do and it's also not right for me to do that like I'm a spokesperson um but you know the the I was actually pushed by the Australian Publishers Association to give some sort of feedback um and like it actually took an extra month to bring the report out because I kept pushing back and they kept pushing back and it just became a stalemate um but the sort of fundamental thing that the report was about was that until our publishing houses actually are peopled by by someone outside the norm and in positions of power i'm not talking about a whole bunch of entry-level positions or internships that don't lead to any jobs which is what's, what's which is what's happened like that's what we've got in this in this business now um you know you've got people who are in commissioning and higher roles which is there are so few of us um even though there are a lot of people of color who work in the industry um until that happens it publishers have no uh, that vocabulary is another is the word I used before, but they have no scope of actually doing any better when it comes to representation because everything is still happening through the white gaze. It's still very a very colonial white saviour kind of gaze, and it's still very introspective. And it's um you know that whole defensiveness that comes when people criticise you, and you can't see past it um, to actually see what the problem is and to empathise with what's happening on the other side of things. So um, I do if people are interested, I do really recommend going to read it it's it's available for free on the APA's website and the thing is like the, the report itself it's actually kind of incorrect to call it a report because it's really just like it's a collection of testimony more than anything else like I've done a bit of editorializing to stitch it all together but you know it's people speaking from their own experience in their own words for the most part about what it is like to try and navigate this industry. This is in the UK, that was the context. But how? Do, what, what is the experience like to navigate this industry when the odds are stacked so hard against you and you're constantly being gaslit by people who are saying that they're giving you every opportunity and you just know they're not? Um, I've forgotten the second part. Oh, the FMPSE network. Yeah, that was actually the best thing that happened out of the research, out of the fellowship. Um, it was really interesting. I'm the first non-European person of colour who got the Beatrice Davis Fellowship. Potentially I'll be the last after everything that's happened since. Um, but one of the loveliest things that sort of came from it was the moment it was announced, I got suddenly, I suddenly became a flashpoint for all of the other people of colour working in the industry and Kappa Fam was one of them. Um, she just dropped into my my DMs, um, I think a day after the fellowship was announced. And, you know, she was like, I thought I was a unicorn. I found another unicorn and let's chat. And so we became really, really good friends. And she was, um, she had read the report before it had come out. Um, I'd sent it to her. And one of the takeaways in it was that, you know, peer support is such an important part of being able to survive it because at least you have people who acknowledge that bad things have happened to you or bad things are happening. Um, and so it was actually her idea. She she likes to disclaim it because she's just that kind of a wonderful person. But it was definitely her idea. She was like, should we just do this? Um, and I was like, yes, but you can't. Like, I, I'm I'm the first person to say that I don't have capacity to be able to run this, and I don't want to run it. And she and so she brought in Grace, who is who was a friend of hers. Um, and the three of us sort of talked about it for a couple of months. What would it ideally look like? Um, what would we ideally like to get out of it? And so, yeah, it's it's a closed network. It's like a, it's a matter of public record, but it is a closed network. We don't share our um, network meeting um, membership list, and we meet and we talk and we have authors come and speak to us about their experiences. And you know, we're all we're trying. We've just 
we've just finished a year of the network and we're trying very hard to plan forward for 2022 and onwards in terms of advocacy of trying to put forward policy and something you know hopefully to be some sort of consultative body because it is it's you know we are the moderators but um it's very much a committee kind of process of the network itself so when when people when publishers i should say um say things like oh we don't know who to speak to about this we no one gave us feedback about that we like they're on notice like we exist we're in the world and um they also can't deny that there is a problem because you know there's a report about it now yeah, I'm a part of the network and it's such a great little group and there's so many opportunities that I find out through you first before I see it advertised anywhere else. And yeah, I think it's just such a great thing. Um, we were talking about this before in the waiting room around, I guess, Coco, you've left the industry and Radia, you're still in it. Could you talk to us about your respective decisions to both leave and stay in the industry? I'll start with you first, Coco. Um, there's no clear reason. It's lots of small reasons. Um some are just personal, like my interests changed. Um, I have wild climate change anxiety that <laughs> I needed to do some meaningful work um, to address. And then also just professional frustrations, like um, there's such a, lots of, lots of things like um, the lack of transparency around pay, the really slow change, uh, the pace of um, change that we've talked about already. Um, it felt like I was Sisyphus or we were all, you know, so many publishing workers were Sisyphus just pushing the boulder up from hell and we burn out and we get tired um, after COVID. Just needed a break, basically. Um, but, yeah, I think it got to the point where I couldn't be the best editor that I wanted to be and I couldn't um, do the best work by the authors that I had um, built relationships with, which was really upsetting because... Um, that is something that I value and I think it's an incredible part of being an editor, but um, it just wasn't going to be as fulfilling for me or for the authors. Um, so I think I just needed a bit of a circuit break. I might come back. We'll see. Um, but, uh, yeah, just lots of small issues. And uh, whenever there is um, some momentum for change, like, uh, like all the push for unionising that we've seen, it feels like the people who um, instigate that are punished severely and it just feels like it's going to be so slow to make any positive change in this industry. Um, so I very much admire and am in awe of Radio for sticking it out, so I'd love to know how you manage it. I mean, I should say that I I quit the, I theoretically quit the industry um, in twenty. 18 um where it's for exactly the same like the sort of death by a thousand cuts that is editorial in a publishing house um because i was at um alan and Omlin and like there was there was nothing i mean having come from an extremely toxic workplace before i got to alan and Omlin, there was nothing wrong there like i was held in quite a great amount of affection by my immediate manager um, I had 101 opportunities to just, you know, spread my wings and fly and, and have that autonomy that I crave. But the complete lack of willingness to acknowledge that affection and autonomy do not compensate for the labour that you do and just people's in unwillingness to accept that it is, it is an exploit, exploitation industry, like all the cultural arts, honestly. 
um, you know, so you, I, I went to my manager after my, my um, performance review and I just said, I, I want to quit. I think I just burst into tears because I was so upset about it. And, you know, they didn't want to see me upset. And so they, their response quite funnily was, oh, well, what if we give you all these other things to do? And my response was, the problem isn't, I mean, yes, I'm bored. That's, that is a problem. Like I don't like not having or like any control over what I'm working on and I'm really thoroughly uninspired by what my output is. Um, and like our performance reviews had a thing of, you know, what did you find in the last 12 months that was fulfilling what was a career highlight? And I couldn't think of an answer, which is a terrible place to be. That's actually what prompted the whole, like, oh, I'm going to quit. Um, and so when I, I actually, I got a job in public service and I should have taken it. I have so much regret that I didn't um, because I suddenly thought, oh, maybe it'll be better if I go freelance. And I do a job that I don't, I'm, I'm not emotionally invested in anymore because like, I do think the stories we tell matter. And I think that was what, what was, that was one of the, that was at least 10 of the thousand cuts was that I thought we were just putting out dross and like, harmful because they, it was so beige. Um, and so I decided to take the audio producer's job. That's why I moved into that because, you know, I was sort of using the editorial brain because you have to, you know, we're directing in studio and so you, you have to make creative choices. So it is an editorial job in that sense. But the books were not mine and so I didn't have to feel that pressure of, of the work. Um, and I would have stayed there until the mythical public service job came back around, which hasn't happened yet, not for lack of trying. Um, and then, except that after June last year, um, when... Penguin, like all the other publishing houses, was sort of pearl clutching about the fact that they didn't know what to do about Black Lives Matter. And I just, I happened to work there. That was literally the only thing. I happened to work there and I happened to be the fellow that the Penguin had nothing to do with that. That was all stuff that I was doing sort of in my free time. Um, and they, they asked me to do this commissioning job and it took me three weeks to say yes. And I'm still not sure I did the right thing in saying yes. And that's kind of the reason why I feel like I can't leave because... You know, like I was saying before, at commissioning level and higher, there, there are there are a few women, there are three women of colour in the children's world at commissioning level or higher, and that's it. And then there's me, and I work in children's and adult. So there is that sense of responsibility, like you've been put into a position that people don't get. And again, like my whole entry into publishing, right place at the right time or right place at the wrong time, really. Um, and being put into that role and having that level of, it's not really power, because as I said, you still have to go through all the bureaucratic hoops that trying to get a book published at Penguin Random House means or any multinational means. Like I'm, I'm not trying to shit on Penguin specifically. But also to walk away means the you know 60 odd authors that are sitting in my inbox at various stages of development like where do they go the ones who don't have a deal already like I've already managed to push a few through but the ones who haven't already gotten a deal where do they go who do they go to and I don't want I don't want to say like the Jesus Christ of, of publishing like that's not it at all but certainly that sense of responsibility has really taken away the agency in being like you know what I'm done I don't have it in me anymore I'm walking away um, but, you know, to be brutally honest, every single week I have that debate with myself. Is it time to walk away? Um, can I do more of this? And usually the answer is no, but then also, like, 
what's the next step then? Where do you go then? And what do you, more importantly, what do you do with the people who are now relying on you to do something? I mean, I haven't yet found the answer to that. So the ability to just say, just throw in that towel and say, I'm done is just, yeah, it's, it's not currently an op open option. It'd be great to reach a stage where the burden of representation wasn't just on you and that there would be people <laughs> to take your place. Yeah, it's really tough. And I know also to remind everyone, we're going to start taking Q&As in five minutes. So if you have any questions, please put them in the chat. Um, I know this phrase has become so trite, self-care, but how do both of you draw boundaries between work and life, especially when I guess all of us kind of enter the arts because we love reading, but then reading becomes work. How do you continue to find joy in the same things that, I don't know, were your hobby, I suppose, were now their work? I absolutely could not. And I wish I'd learnt how to have some work-life balance. But um, I think, Rada, you mentioned it before, just that emotional investment in the work that you do and how draining that can be. Um, yeah, and you do feel like a huge amount of responsibility. Um, so it's really hard to, to um, yeah, disconnect uh, that um, when you log off it. Uh, whenever you log off because it's not a nine to five but um at, when I was working in um publishing I found joy by just discovering new genres that I um yeah like crime thrillers rom-coms just genres that I hadn't thought to pick up because I think I was just cultivating you know pretentious um literary fiction reader vibes because I thought that's what you needed to be to get into publishing um, and didn't realise I could have been having a great time with crime thrillers and rom-coms and lots of different things. So that was how I managed to retain some passion for reading. Um, but I can tell you it's really, really lovely now to read for pleasure, um, not for my day job. So that is quite nice. Yeah, I have to say I've, I've been going through a few months of months stretch. I think it's been about four or five months now since I've been able to read for pleasure. Um, and so my self-care involves just like a lot of drag race and just like other, just, I call it brain bleach. I just need it to just strip out everything and let my brain switch off for a bit. Cause even, um, I don't know if you found this Coco, but even watching like narrative shows, um, I can't help but pick, pick apart narrative problems. So, um, my friends and I love, like they love, they love making fun of the fact that for me all roads whenever I'm talking about bad narrative all roads lead to Bridgerton for me I just couldn't I hated that show so much because it just editorially it sucked <laughs> so yeah like um reality tv works I do a lot of sewing I'll be honest um you can't see it but like my friends and I we just sort of trade um basically swear words in cross stitch it's fantastic um, but also, yeah, genre fiction. Like I, I used to freelance proofread um, romance ebooks. Just it was a side hustle that made you know a decent bit of money. Um, and I started really loving the genre. Like not in the same way you don't love everything. You don't love every single book. But um, yeah, so reading pulpy chiclet, chiclet, reading pulpy romance, reading pulpy. I don't. I'm not really a crime reader, but reading pulpy like fantasy things that I know are not really in the wheelhouse of things that I'm ever going to be able to commission because of the limitations of the company that I work for. That actually, even though I can't switch off editor brain, and I don't think I'll ever be able to, it's the same thing as like when you learn how to analyse film in high school, you start analysing every film. Um, but 
but yeah, it's that sort of thing. If I can detach my brain from the work that I'm doing. Um, yeah, because there is so much expected unpaid labour in terms of like reading manuscripts and stuff. It's very hard to draw the line between the two. And I think um, certainly working from home has actually helped a great deal with that because, you know, this is like a dedicated workspace. If I'm not in this room, I'm not working. So I won't take manuscripts out to the couch. I won't take manuscripts to bed. Um, so, yeah, like I actually got really vigilant about my my not nine to five, but, you know, 830 to six or whatever it is. Um, I got really vigilant about observing those hours and then walking away and you know I know people in publishing would like to think that what we do is like life or death it really genuinely isn't <laughs> if I don't if I don't read this book and get back to someone like tomorrow nothing bad is going to happen it's going to be fine I think it, it took a long time to get to that position I love that strict like differentiation of space I really need to do that as well as in yes work in one room and then don't take it to bed or couch I'm very bad at that yeah yeah um, so I know, Radia, you said you looked back and you didn't have any career highlights that you wanted to talk about. Just in that year. Just in that year. Just that year. But I wanted to ask overall if both of you had any, I guess, book or moment that you're particularly proud of in your career. Am I only allowed one? Oh, no, many. Okay. <laughs> many one. Yeah. Um, so The Glad Shout was um, one of those books that just, like, blew my mind when I read the first manuscript and just that, yeah, incredible moment that um, editors always dream about um, when you know you've struck gold. And um, that went on to, re- to win the Readings Prize, which was really important. Um, so Firm Press hadn't at that stage had much of a track record for literary fiction. Um, and Alice is just, Alice Robinson, the author, is just such an incredible um, writer who I think will have a really long career. It is incredible. So glad you agree. <laughs> So that was really fantastic to, that was her second book. Um, So it was really exciting to see her grow and take that next step. Um, And it'll be really exciting to see where she goes next. Um, And then another one, if I can slide one in, um, just one of those books that warms your heart. Um, I had this idea because I got really obsessed with making pasta. Um, And so I just get really attached to titles. So I thought of the title, Nono Knows, Nono Knows Best. And at first I thought maybe I'll write this in-house and it'll be a sweet little gift book. But then um, thankfully I commissioned um, Jacqueline Krupe, who is an incredible reviewer, writer, editor, um, bookseller. Um, And she just brought so much joy and passion to that book and made it something that I could never have made it. And it's incredible. So um, those two books are career highlights for me. Yeah, for me. I was the I was the editor on um, Jacqueline Moriarty's Kingdoms and Empires series. It's still going, but um, I, in the first two, I was in house for, and so um, she's one of the most generous authors I've ever met. And you know, she's Jacqueline Moriarty. She's got you know a, a stories long career. She's part of a storied like literary family, um, and the generosity with which she approached that job with me I think it made me a better editor to be quite honest and she was an editor editor's dream in the sense of like a structural edit for her was me literally just sitting down and writing a list of questions that I had for her and then just giving it to her and then she would come back three months later and the, and the manuscript was perfect wow, so dream. <laughs> absolute dream and I've uh I'm not I'm not gonna say anything more because I think I might offend a lot of other authors um but you know she it was incredible because that was also 
Um, what Coco, you were saying before about, you know, wearing lots of different hats, that was a job where I could actually do that with because the whole series design, the series look, that was all on my shoulders. And I, and that, I don't mean in a bad way at all. That was such a good thing to have, you know, sitting with a designer and literally going through line by line and talking about text design and illustration. And I found a debut illustrator for it. And like, what will the covers look like? What will the foil plate look like? What will be the things that carry across the series? Um, and I just, I loved it so much. And then by, by the time the third book was out, uh, third book had been written, um, I wasn't at Alan and Unwin anymore. Um, but I got permission from my um, manager at the time because I was still in audio then. And Penguin, like, like most other um, multinationals have like a non-compete clause. So you can't, you can't freelance for other people. Um, but she was just like, you're here to do audio, go and freelance if you want to, it's fine. Um, so yeah, I got to freelance on the third book and it was, it was that thing of being very, um, it was very bittersweet because I knew it was probably going to be the last time I could do this. And so to real, and it was by far her best book as well in the series. Um, and the best thing about it was she, uh, I once told her about my horrible high school, high school history teacher. Um, and she said, oh, you should write a book about him. I was like, that's not my, it's not my thing. And so she ended up skewering him in the villain of the third book. And I just, I was reading, I was on a plane from Melbourne to Perth and I just decided to start reading the manuscript while I was on the plane. And I laughed so hard, I scared the man sleeping next to me when I realized that was the villain. So that was definitely a huge highlight and I, I, the series is still going and I wish her the best. And I think it's, it's so lovely to see where it's going. And the other highlight, if I can squeeze it a second, is um, Rala Arja's The F Team, which I did freelance for Giramondo, um, purely because, I mean, first of all, Nick Tapper at Giramondo is just an incredible editor, uh, incredibly generous person as well. Um, but also Rawa herself. I don't know if she has more books in her. I don't, I don't know like what her plan is as a writer, but to sit with her when that book first came to me and, you know, it came to me for slightly questionable reasons of like, she's a Muslim woman, you're a Muslim woman, surely you should edit. I'm like, yeah, but she's Lebanese and working class and I'm South Asian and middle class. Like the, the, there's not that much similarity between us, but sure. Um, but sitting with her and that question about intention, that was the moment that really crystallized for me when I was like, who is this book for and what are you doing with it? I mean, it's sort of some of that guides most of my conversations, especially with writers of colour, of, you know, if you're writing for a white audience or if you're writing for your own communities or for other communities, it makes a huge difference to how a book works. Um, and really helping her, she, you know, when we talk rough debut, that it was a rough debut, she'd had no help in terms of framing the work and getting it to where it needed to be. And it was during Black Summer and I remember I just spent like 10 days with her choking to death on smoke and writing and doing this book together. And then like the finished product is just so beautiful. I know it's made such an impact on so many lives as well, that, that book. So to have played this tiny part in it to have helped her get that vision out. She had such a clear vision. Um, that was incredible. And I, you know, I would do it again in a heartbeat. We have an audience question, which is, can we have a book recommendation from each of you? <laughs> it's a small question. Uh, from our uh, respective publishing houses? or No, I didn't think so. Just anything you like, I think. Anything you've enjoyed this year, perhaps. I remember. I need to check my Goodreads. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I will just do a plug for the firm press book, if that's okay. <laughs> um, the Good Life by Hannah Maloney is um 
just this wonderful book. So she's a presenter on Gardening Australia. Um, and I came across her videos about home composting in the middle of lockdown last year and um, approached her to do a book. And I thought it would, you know, be a gardening book, but then it became so much more. It's um, a manifesto about how we can live um, in this climate crisis. And it's about um, radical hope and bringing joy into a world where um, just so many things that are not quite right, <laughs> to put it bluntly. And um, she's just wonderful. So just one of those heartwarming books um, that are so much more than they may seem to be by judging by the cover. Um, I don't know if this is a reflection on my job, but um, I won't be plugging a Penguin Random House book. Um, uh, this one's been around for a little bit, so I think a lot of people probably have already seen it, but the Collisions Anthology from Pantera, from Liminal and um, printed by Pantera, it's incredible. It's um, There's something for kind of every mood in that book, which I find really enchanting. Um, so I definitely highly recommend that. And this one I actually found the other day, and um, it's it's published by Subdin Press, so it's like a little indie. Um, it's called The Naming. It's a collection of poetry by um, Aisha Shahidil. And it's a debut. I met her the other day, actually, just to have a chat. And she's um, she's in her 20s and one of those just exhaustingly brilliant, accomplished young people <laughs> just made me feel really old. Um, but yeah, it's, it's her poetry debut. It's also sort of lyrical essays. And uh, it's about joy and grief and longing and mourning. And I just think it's one of the most perfect little collections I've ever seen. And it's also like, it's that big, it's not big at all. So highly recommend, I think you get it off the Subdin website. I don't think it's been um, stopped anywhere. Amazing. So we've got one minute to go and I was told we could go a little bit over time. So I'm going to squeeze in one last question, which is what advice do both of you have for people interested in becoming an editor? Just as parting words. Um, I think it's really important to um, really, really, really understand that publishing is a business, um, despite the fact that writing is an art and a craft. Um, and there is a really difficult tension between the craft and the business. Um, it's, to put it um, in a really crass way, which I've heard a few times from different publishing um, directors, we're in the book selling supply, bookstore supply business. So we're creating a product for bookstores, which is really, really um, not how I want to see books because I want to see them as, um, you know, incredible stories and it's the author's vision. But it is a product and the sales matter. And that's something that is kind of a hard lesson to learn sometimes when publishing seems like this beautiful um, industry and editing seems like an incredibly important and um, meaningful job, which it is, but just there's a commercial aspect which can be hard to deal with at times. <laughs> Good answer there, Coco. I don't know if I can follow that. Um, I guess I guess the counter, it's not a, I mean, it's a completely important point. I guess the counter I would have to that, that narrative that comes out of like the business end of publishing is that it is, it's a gambling business filled by people who are really bad at gambling. Um, and people want to pretend like there are sort of invisible market forces that create um, miraculous successes and those sales figures that people really want. And not a lot of um, 
responsibility taken for the fact that a, pub, a book does really, really well 80% of the time because the publishers paid a lot of money to make it do really, really, really well. So American Dirt's a great example where, you know, those are paid windows and stuff like WH Smith putting it in their window in the UK and stuff. That was a paid position. I don't know what the Dimex book of the month thing, how that works, but certainly people would have leveraged, like, you know, people at Hachette would have leveraged their their relationships with Dimex to have made that book of the month and to push units. And so that thing of like, yeah, it's a business and we push units, but people are constantly making quality judgments about which units to push and which units don't deserve any airtime or any resources. And, and then that's sort of wielded as a weapon to say that, oh, this is why this kind of book doesn't work. There's no market for it. So I guess from an editor's perspective, if it is at all possible, see if you try very, very hard to um, separate your personhood from the work that you do because there is that cold business reality and it will it will eat you up. There's a reason why burnout is so common in our industry because, yeah, you go into it because you believe and then you realise that no one really cares if you believe in it or not as long as you hit your production deadline so try not to attach your personhood to it even if you attach your personhood to you know the experience of your authors and like the loyalty you feel to them and they might feel to you that's a really worthy place to put that energy and that isn't quantifiable by you know 5,000 book scan sales for example um and sort of as a as a uh, addition to that um because it's an exploitation industry know that as editors you do bring value you bring so much value to an organization without you this like the organization doesn't work um without editors a whole pub a publisher can't work basically so this whole thing of you know you accept you know low pay rates you accept the bullying you accept the silencing and all, all of those terrible little things that just they you know unless you're extremely resilient they do they do come to you but know that you're so valuable, you are an asset, just people to refuse to acknowledge it as so. So, you know, if you're not attaching a person to it, I think it's a little bit easier to to keep that idea in your head. It's a great place to end. Thank you so much. Um, thank you to Radio and Coco. Thank you to Matilda and Claire at the Editing Micro Festival. Thank you all for tuning in. Um, thank you. You have been listening to an Editing Micro Festival podcast. This podcast was recorded from the 27th to the 29th November 2021. It was edited and produced by Matilda Dixon-Smith and introduced by Claire Miller and featured Sonia Nair, Radia Chowdhury and Coco McGrath. With thanks to the City of Melbourne for their support.